The following is a sermon from Pastor David Salinas of Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. A little girl had bravely decided to cross the monkey bars for the first time. She steps up the ladder carefully with a little bit of fear and trepidation. She stands on the top rung of that ladder and reaches up, and with one hand, she grasps the first rung of the monkey bars. She looks at her dad as if to say, is it okay? He nods, and she lets go of her feet and swings, and her momentum carries her to the second rung. And with wide eyes of excitement, delight, she lets go of the right arm and lets her momentum carry her, and she swings monkey-like and catches the third rung, and the fourth, but suddenly, uh uh-oh, she's out of momentum. And there she is with both arms clasping that middle bar of the monkey bars, her little feet start to swing to try and catch momentum, but she realizes she can't, and and her arms are getting tired, and she looks ahead, but she's not able to go forward, not able to reach that other side, that promised land that is the other side of the monkey bars, and she looks back, and she can't go back there either, and she looks down, and letting go is out of the question. She's scared. She starts to grip the monkey bars tighter, And you can almost see her knuckles starting to turn white as she squeezes hard and fights to hang on. Her little feet start to swing wildly, and this is when the panic settles in, and she yelps at her cry, Daddy, help! I'm falling! Dad, who is close by and watching, yells back, I'm coming, honey. Hold on. Hurry, Daddy. I'm slipping. This, too, is Advent. This, too, is sometimes what waiting looks like for us as Christians. Sometimes it's a time of just holding on, holding on with white-knuckled fury to the unfailing iron bar of the mighty Savior's promised deliverance as we dangle over the abyss of death and hell. And in the present moment of tribulation and struggle, and and life in a fallen world, not yet at a place of relief, no longer able to return to a better place in life, we're reduced to a single guttural cry. Jesus, Savior, help. I'm coming. I'm coming, booms his advent cry. Hold on. Oh, do hurry, Lord because sometimes it's so hard to hold on. Listen. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things, things that we did not expect, You came down, and the mountains trembled before you. 
Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, your ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Can you see them? The knuckles of the prophet's face. Speaking on behalf of every believer in his day, can you see those knuckles turning white as he squeezes the bar of God's promises and fights to hold on? Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you, Lord, would take your bare hands and rip open the sky like a curtain and come down and put the fear of God into the very mountains, not to mention into the heart of your enemies, that all may know your name, mighty Savior. This is an explosion of emotion from a believer at the end of his rope. It is a desperate, white-knuckled cry of a believing Christian heart, yearning not just for rescue, but for dramatic rescue, and, and a complete reversal of fortunes. This is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm slipping. And it's no wonder. The Holy Spirit has put Isaiah, think of it this way, in a divine time machine and launched him 150 years into the future. Isaiah is writing as if he were one of the minority of believers in Israel nearing the end of their 70-year exile and captivity in Babylon. For nearly 70 years, this little, this little group, this little minority of believers, Old Testament Christians, have been waiting and waiting and waiting, holding on for dear life to the promise of coming back to their homeland, dreaming of the day when they can run their fingers through the dirt of Israel, and, and work the very fields and build their homes atop that dirt. And even more, they have been dreaming and holding on for dear life to the promise of once more setting foot on the one piece of earth on the planet that had attached to it the promise of their Savior from sin. And all this time in exile, in captivity, each moment felt like this. Stuck. Stuck in the pain the darkness, the fear, the uncertainty, the regret, unable to swing forward to that happy place of sweet restoration and peace, unable at the same time to go back and do it all over and make different choices to avoid this mess. And to make matters infinitely and unbearably worse, the only voice that pierced the darkness and struck their ears as they dangled and struggled to hold on was not their Savior's booming advent cry, I'm coming, hold on but rather the taunt of their captors. Where is your God now? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and 
punch them in the mouth. And so it is with us. In our own ways, every day we wake up to the exile and captivity of those difficulties that leave us dangling, momentumless, holding on to Jesus' promises of a mighty deliverance. And you know, for each one of us, it's different, but we all have them. Maybe it's illness, or the illness of, of a loved one, and the fear and anxiety that is uniquely yours as you deal with that pain. For many of us, it's loss, and the grief that is also uniquely ours. And nobody knows, nobody knows our hurt like we do. This time of year can be one that is especially dark, marked by loneliness and depression. A man just told me the other day, you know, Christmas time is a joyful time if you have money to buy gifts. But if you don't have that, well, it can be one of the most depressing times of year. And I don't have to tell you about all the deadlines and pressures that you're under, the exhaustion of making a living and taking care of others, the constancy of the conflicts without and, and the silent battles within the fears of the future for our children, for our country, for our church. Here we are, each one of us, in our own way, exiled and captive to some woe or trouble in this foreign land of a sin-broken life, as we long for that promised land of glory, the home of the righteous and the innocent. And in our exile, in our captivity, God can sometimes seem a long way off. Jesus a long time in coming. And all of this, just when you boil it down, when you, when you put it all together, this gives credence and power and volume to the voices of the unbelieving world around us that continually cry out, where is your God now? Lord Jesus, please rend the heavens already. Come quickly and show yourself to be the one true and only Savior we confidently claim you to be, we proclaim you to be, and that you yourself have promised to be. But there is an even greater pain and desperation and yearning and grasp in Isaiah's cry. The prophet wails and weeps and wallows in the sad and terrifying truth that the captives are in the mess they're in because of their own sin. Their exile and captivity, all their heartbreaking losses of their homeland, their loved ones, and their temple was a bed of their own making. In verse 5, Isaiah acknowledges that God champions the cause of the righteous. Listen how he says it. You come to the help of those who do right. In fact, according to verse 4, God made a name for himself by acting in a mighty way on behalf of those who wait for him and live by that faith. But Isaiah immediately confesses on behalf of each one of them, of this little believing little remnant in Babylon, that sadly they too were not always those who did right. They too did not always wait for the Lord. They too got complacent with and numb to the sins and evil of the unbelieving society around them. They too got impatient with and tired of waiting on the Lord, and at times they fell prey to the idolatry of trying to solve their own problems and pull themselves up out of their own difficulties by their own strength and their own resources and their own reasoning. 
And it was therefore, therefore in part their sins, not just the sins of all those really bad people out there that led to the fierce destruction of Jerusalem and the forced deportation to Babylon. When we, says Isaiah, you and I, believing people, continue to sin against them, namely your ways, O Lord, you were angry. And worst of all, the deepest darkness at the bottom of the prophet's desperate cry is that God's seeming silence, his apparent slowness to fulfill his mighty promise to save, feels as if he's done with them, as if he has had all he can of them. How then can we, we sinners, be saved, Isaiah asks. And we know the answer. There's only one way, only one hope. Forgiveness. God would simply have to forgive their sins and save them anyway despite those sins. But in their present moment of hanging on yet losing their grip, in the present moment of being stuck in the misery of their own captivity, longing for that deliverance but, but having that silence towards the answer to their prayer, even that last singular hope seems dashed. It seems as if the thing God has has taken his bare hands to and torn asunder, rent in two, is not the sky, and it's not going to be, but his contract to forgive their sins and remember them no more. You have hidden your face from us, says the prophet, and given us over to our sins. And this is why, this is why we have all become one who is unclean, like one who is unclean, unable to enter into your presence. This is why even our righteousness is as filthy rags, because it seems as if, as if we are standing before you on the basis of our own goodness that is covered in the muck of our own sin. This is why it seems as nobody, not even, not even we anymore, can turn to you. And, and this is why it seems to us as if, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. In the misery of captivity and God's silence, it feels as if they crossed the line and reaped for themselves the judgment of disheartening their hearts for their sin, on, in their sin. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and deliver us from ourselves, from our sin. This was at the bottom of Isaiah and the believing remnant's desperate cry, and I say to you people of God, let it be at the bottom of ours. The truth is, this world is fallen and broken, not just because of the sins of all of those bad people out there, but because of our sins too. This world is the way it is, not just because of all of those who do not wait on the Lord, but because of the numbness to the evil around us. And in the day of trouble, rather than calling on his name, we have committed the idolatry of calling upon our own strength and reasoning. We have all coddled our own weaknesses and sins and given into them, sometimes because we feel so forgiven. And with each willing surrender, we do call down God's judgment to give us over to our sins that would sweep us away. 
Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rend the heavens wide and save us from ourselves before that ever happens. But then suddenly, suddenly something dramatic happens. Something just changes like, like in the middle of this dark pit, a beautiful ray of light pierces the darkness and lifts the fog. Right in the pit, in the deepest depths of the prophet's yearning that is also ours, right at the fever pitch of Isaiah's desperate cry that gives full voice to ours, save us, Lord, save us quickly. Something unforeseen but wonderful happens, something that does not follow the violent stream of emotion and, and desperation. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Run your fingers across verse 8 again, the first words of that beautiful verse. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. The image at the opening of our sermon comes back to me. The little girl's dangling feet swing wildly, her panicked eyes widen and bulge to their limit. Suddenly one hand lets go because it can't hold on any longer and she's just dangling there in the middle of the monkey bars with her right arm and she feels as if her fingers are all slipping and she cries out one more time. But in that instant, in swoops dad and with his right arm, scoops her into his arms, and she throws her arms around his neck and squeezes with relief and delight. Daddy! But you are our father. What a moment. Oh, stay in it with me for a little bit. In the middle of the apocalypse of desperation, as on the apocalypse on the last day, the tender truth of God's relationship to us rises to the surface of the prophet and through his sudden proclamation to the surface of us. And instantly, the explosion of emotion, the deafening peals of thunder of desperation give way to a tender cry of relief and gladness. Father, Daddy. And it must be. So it must be. At the remembrance of the truth of God's relationship to us, the emotion must change from desperation to delight, from anxiety to certainty, from total cataclysm of the heart to utter calm of the heart, from heavy sadness to buoyant gladness. It must, because how did this mighty, glorious, completely other and holy God who can rip apart the sky like paper and usher in a final and terrifying judgment, how did this God become your father and mine. He did so by acting on our behalf to answer the prophet's question. How then can we be saved? Only through forgiveness. And so before he would answer the prophet's prayer and ours in the final sense to rend the heavens wide and come down, the father, at just the right time, when the time had fully come, before we would slip and fall into the dark, bottomless abyss of hell, sent his son through the virgin. And when he was born, the heavens were rent, all right. They were torn in two with angelic praises. Unto you, unto you, a Savior has been born. And the son lived up to that name, 
a name which he had made for himself from of old and had been given at his birth. You see, he too hung on a bar of his own and dangled about a foot or two off the ground. And by his sacrifice, all of our sins that would, that would forever sweep us away like the wind sweeps the leaves away were themselves like the wind completely and forever swept away. Each and every last one of them. Each and every last one of the things that would make God angry with us have been blown away. And you and I were made right with God through his Holy Son. And we know we were because like the heavens will be on the last day, the curtain that in Jesus' day was 60 feet tall and actually two curtains, each one a hand's width thick, were torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that we have full and free access to God. And by having his spirit come down to us through that truth, God has given us a new birth in Christ. And, and through that new birth, he has given each and every one of us, each and every one of us who wait on the Lord, who hope in Christ, who long for his second coming, the stunning and staggering right and privileged to be called children of God. And that is what we are. And that is what you are. Christian, that is what you are. A dearly loved child of God. And that means God can never leave you. God can never forsake you. It means God is never far, far away from you, but at just the right time will always come and catch you in his arms and save you in every way that you need saving. It means, it means that God will carry you and you can throw your arms around the Lord Jesus and know that you are loved. And so we wait. We wait for Jesus to come again. We wait holding on to his promises. But with the truth of who God is to us in Jesus lighting up our hearts, our hold is no longer a failing, slipping grip, but the strong, determined hold of a little girl regaining her grip and momentum as her father carries her safely and successfully promised land of that other side. And our response to the prophet's question, what shall I cry? A question he asks in chapter 40 of his book of comforts. Our answer is no longer filled with apocalyptic desperation, but advent hope. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We can't wait to see your lovely face. We can't wait for you to come and make our sadness flee away.